This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we speak with Representative Sharon Shoemake, who is running for re-election in the 42nd Legislative District. This was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, October 13th. We turn next to Sharon Shoemake. She is representative for the 42nd LD in position two, and she serves as the vice chair of the Rural Development, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee. She also sits on the Energy and Environmental Committee, as well as the Transportation Committee. In her professional life, she is a professor of economics and energy policy at Western Washington University in Bellingham. Hello, Representative Shoemake. It's so good to see you. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Before we go any further, can I just say you are hilarious on Twitter and TikTok. I try. <laughs> Everybody should check you out. Uh, follow you on both platforms. You're, you're, you're awesome. So, you know, when we first spoke, you told me that you didn't see yourself running for office until it became clear that, that your community needed somebody to step up and lead. So let's start here. What were some of the areas that were lacking leadership and how have you sought to address those? Yeah. So the short answer is my state representative didn't believe climate change was real. And, you know, if you don't believe that, what else do you got that I don't agree with you on, right? What else are you lying about if you're lying about the basic science? Um, I always saw myself as the like advisor to a policy person. Like that was the goal that I wanted to be when I became an economist. I never thought I'd run for office. Well, you are and you did and you're in. So let's talk about your key platform, the, the climate. Um, you prime sponsored a number of bills in the last session that you say create energy and resource efficiencies while also protecting the climate and saving taxpayer dollars. That sounds awesome and also really challenging. Uh, can you tell us about some of those bills? Yeah. Um, so our energy sector is really heavily regulated. And one of the big reasons why is that you think about the energy sector and it's a lot of monopolies, right? So we only have one electricity provider in an area. We only have one natural gas provider in an area. Um, and so when we think about those monopolies, we can't just allow them to do whatever they want. We t- tend to regulate them and we regulate them on this cost plus um, basis. So it's the super regulated area. And They're regulated on all these measures in terms of the monopoly, some on the environment. And when it comes to figuring out, well, how do you make it green? We also have to think through a lot of those regulations as well. So sometimes the definition of what is green energy, the definition of what is renewable hydrogen, we have to go back and we have to revise it and think through what is really renewable. So the first bill I passed um, was actually looking at some of those definitions, clearing some of that up about some transparency in what is green energy and what is the energy mix in your sector. And I found out later once we passed the bill that they've been trying to get it passed for a long time. This was a problem with the Department of Commerce. They just needed a nerd. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So that was my nerdy bill. They're all nerdy. Um, The other two that I worked on that were climate bills was one was a bill that um, it doesn't even have my name on it. It came over from the Senate. We dropped a house version, but um, we want to, see farmers as a partner in addressing climate change. So they're impacted by it, but there's also a lot of on-farm opportunities to sequester carbon. And sometimes people don't realize that farmers really are environmentalists. They're just sometimes a little bit different than urban environmentalists, less Patagonia, more, you know, Carhartt. Um, And so let's make this another revenue stream. 
let's make this something that's profitable. Let us suck carbon out from the atmosphere and maybe someone who wants to burn a little bit more pays them to sequester it for them. It doesn't really matter to the earth and you get some co-benefits as well. The third one is what I was really excited about. And I got this idea by reading an economics paper and it was talking about our natural gas distribution network. So like I said, there's a monopoly. And so we regulate them by saying, okay, well you can get your costs back that you use plus a little rate of return. But we have to be careful on, we regulate, well, what counts as a real cost? And what is just you building stuff so that you can get that rate of return and pass it on to the ratepayers, right? So they could pass on the cost of the lost gas. So anything that leaked out of these pipes, that could be passed on because that's part of doing business. But it wasn't clear that they could pass on the cost of actually going ahead and preemptively fixing those pipes unless it was a danger to human health and safety. And so we wrote a bill saying that, well, how about you do a cost benefit analysis? So let's calculate the cost of the lost gas. Cause there was some evidence that you would save money if they did more of this regulation cause you're paying for gas that you don't get. So let's say that if the cost of the lost gas plus the environmental plus the human health and safety write together a formula and say that if the benefits are higher than the cost of fixing it then we want you to go ahead and do it. And again, super nerdy bill but in parts of the country, we saw that Rhode Island had to revise its emissions inventory 50% higher because methane is a potent greenhouse gas. So this is something that comprehensive climate policy may not have gotten to. And it's something that you know saves you money, cuts carbon emissions, creates pipe fitter jobs, and protects human health and safety. I mean, that's four wins. That's a pretty big deal. But you had to go through and dig into all the policy to understand why you need to do it. And we had a whole lot of meetings to figure out how we wanted to do it. Well, this is why it takes, you know, an economist and somebody with a policy background to be able to navigate those sorts of things. And particularly on the economist side, what you're talking about here really is creating incentives. And, you know, as we transition into the green economy, this is the kind of thing that's going to impact your district for years to come. Um so just generally speaking, how do you think about, in the 42nd, the transition from fossil fuels to green jobs? Yeah, so we have some big refineries in our district, um, two pretty big ones, Phillips 66 and uh, BP, and then there's some other ones just south of us, and some people actually commute back and forth. Um, I've always said that our climate policy, our innovation as Washington State, isn't necessarily bringing our CO2 emissions down to zero, although that's great if we can get it to net zero. Um, but really our gift to the world is showing that you can do this, you can do it cost effectively, and you can do it in a way that's politically popular. Because if we just were to zero out our carbon emissions tomorrow, that'd be great, that'd be important, but it's not gonna get us to where we need to go. We need to see international innovation. We need to see national collaboration. And when you look at who's in state legislatures, who's in Congress, a lot of times that pipeline is people coming from, you know, great places like school boards and cities and, you know, wonderful public servants, but it's not always a pipeline of energy nerds who wanna think through what is the return on investment in this particular technology, right? And so if we want them to really solve those problems, it, they're confusing. They're probably boring to most people. Um, I happen to love them, but I know I'm weird. Um, and so let's get solutions that work, right? And that's what I think we should be doing as Washington State, is that if we can show that, you know, if we do a policy and like all my people at refineries lose their jobs and we have massive unemployment, nobody's going to copy this. And so I certainly don't want to see that as a policy. Um, we have to figure these pieces out and we're going to do so carefully. 
then let's talk about something that you uh, recently told me about that I think is incredibly innovative. This is uh, you've been working with some other members of the legislature on new financing around something you call a green recovery bond. So, what is a green recovery bond, and how does it work? And and I will just sort of front end this question by saying there really is an economic gain to this in addition to it being the right thing to do. Yeah, so we just got hit. I we're in a really weird recession right now. Um, there was nothing fundamentally wrong with the economy in January, but we got hit with deadly virus. Um, so we're going to need a different tool to get out of this. The other thing that we're seeing with recessions is the last recession. We saw that you know, kind of wealthy people and people in Seattle they recovered first, and the rest of us had a much longer recovery. And so, how do we think about these kind of two facts that some people are doing fine? Some people are really hurting, and that the last recovery was very unequal, right? And so what we've been talking about is this green recovery bond. So the idea would be that we would um, bring forward revenues from a pollution tax to today. So we would be able to bond this. That's the bonding part of it. We would be bringing this forward, and we would be um, able to invest it in kind of green infrastructure plans. So one of the biggest bangs for your buck is forest health. Um, so we had these nasty fires last uh, this summer that was partially climate change, as Dan was talking about, but some of it could also be mitigated with some forest management. And so we've had some proposals come through. These are good jobs that you could be doing in rural areas, sending people out to do some of this work when they'd otherwise be sitting at home. I mean, this is a great deal in terms of getting rural economies back and in terms of reducing pollution. And, you know, personally, I would have spent a lot of money to not have to breathe in those smoky airs. And you think about those communities that were impacted. I mean, it was heartbreaking watching Eastern Washington burn. So I think we all care a lot about that as well. Another piece of that is there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be done all over the state. So fixing roads and bridges, preservation and maintenance. Um, culverts is another big part of this that, you know, we're being fined for not doing this important work. Um, and then the third piece is high-speed internet. So we could build out the backbone of internet around the state. And what you see is that if Comcast goes ahead and builds it, so if Comcast builds the internet connection to you know, a small town in Whatcom County, then they get to charge whatever they want, right? They get to charge whatever they want and they get to give you bad service because they have a monopoly there. If the state builds out those backbones, then we can allow various ISPs to kind of connect and there's a little bit more competition even in these smaller communities. So you get better service and lower prices than you would with a monopoly. So this is something that, again, is going to produce jobs all over the state. So kind of kickstart those rural economies. But it also sets us up on a better basis for growth as we go forward, right? So same with infrastructure, same with forest health. All three of these are investments that set us up for a better basis of economic growth. And we think about how the pandemic might be fundamentally changing the nature of work. Like um, I heard the term the other day, Zoom towns, which really made me laugh. Um, are people going to be, you know, plugging in from rural areas where there's, I think, a higher quality of life? Um, you can have a little bit more housing for the price and then still be able to connect to your corporate job somewhere else. Well, they're going to need good internet service. They're going to want to be safe from fires and they're going to need good infrastructure to do that. So let's go ahead and do this work. And then if we're able to share some of this economic prosperity all over our state, I mean, that just seems like another big win and something that we should be doing other uh, anyway, but we should especially be doing if 
we need to be creating jobs and getting through through a recession. 100% agreed on everything you said. The one thing I can hear critics saying is that something like this might hit uh, poor people disproportionately with things like you know uh, gas and heating costs. Uh, any ideas how you work around that? Yeah. So this is what I've been saying all along: is that it has to be politically popular, right? We can't have this fall on the backs of low and middle income families. And so what we've been, it's actually kind of expensive to send everyone a check. Um, I tried to create a tax and dividend approach where we just gave people back the money. Because remember, the point of a price on carbon is to increase the price of polluting, not to create money to spend, right? That's actually the mechanism. If the price is higher, then you do less of it. Um, but I think in this case, what we're going to try and do is we're going to give people back a $20 per month credit if you're low income. And the easiest way to get that back to people is on their utility bill. So the utilities are actually kind of set up to do this. So you'd get a $20 per month credit on your utility bill. And one of the things that we're seeing right now with the pandemic is that a lot of people who lost their jobs, they're behind in rent, but they're also behind in their utility payments. So this could kind of help them out a little bit in smoothing some of that over. And it also means that, you know, when we look at investments and subsidies for green things. I don't know if you can hear my kids. They just got out of the bath. It's totally um, fine. We can, but it's, it's just great. <laughs> um, those, it's things like electric cars and solar panels. And, you know, you can only put on solar panels if you own your home or you're able to get into some cool community solar program. And if you're buying an electric car, it's probably a new car. And you probably either need to have a charging station at your apartment or, you know, you need to own your home again. And so those are also difficult things for low-income folks to get into. So I say give them cash for now or through this utility credit. And then as we see more and more solar opportunities, as we decarbonize our electricity, that kind of gets automatically done. And then as we see more used cars kind of come into the market, then we start to see that that becomes a possibility as well. Because used cars are, uh, electric cars are cheaper than gasoline cars if you ignore the upfront costs. The price per mile of using electricity is lower, and there's lower maintenance costs as well. There is so much that I had not only prepared to talk with you about, but would love to talk with you about. I'm going to be have to be very selective here, as we only just have a couple minutes. I will ask you about housing, because I know that this is a big part of your platform. The governor recently extended the eviction moratorium. It is my understanding that your opponent is against the moratorium. What are your views here? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the moratorium was a difficult decision and I don't envy the governor in having to make it, but you can't evict people in the middle of a pandemic. Um, first of all, it would probably spread the virus if we're increasing the homeless population, but a lot of these people lost their jobs, their livelihood through no fault of their own. And so, it threw a wrench into some of these economic relationships because remember a lot of these landlords, I mean, they're not necessarily all wealthy either. This might've been their retirement fund. Um, and so we need to see the federal government step up and help people out with some landlord mitigation fees. Um, the federal government can and should be printing money at a time like this, and they can and should be trying to repair some of these economic relationships because that's, going to be the real cost of the pandemic. It's not so much so many months lost of work, but it's if we break these economic relationships, then, you know, if you've run a small business, you know that 
one of the most expensive things is hiring people. It's time consuming. It's hard to find people and training them. And so the more we can kind of keep people together in that economic and just kind of a, a point of with social distancing, then the better off we'll be and the quicker of a recovery we'll have. Breaking relationships with the people that you hire, breaking relationships with the clients who have come to rely on your services and, and on and on and on. Um, yeah. I, I will just in, ask you in closing, you've been very, very carefully talking with voters, being very socially distant, doing lit drops um, in your very purple district. I'm curious, what what are some of the things that stand out to you about what you're hearing from people, about what they want from their state representation? Yeah. So I think everyone's just kind of tired of the division. People really want us to come together and solve problems. So we've seen this really divisive rhetoric on the national scene, um, especially from the Republicans. It's been law and order messaging, which is meant to kind of scare you and make you think that the other team isn't patriotic or real Americans. And unfortunately, we started to see some of this in Whatcom County as well. But I don't think that's who we are. And I've, I've been on the phones and now, you know, socially distanced doors. And what I think is that we actually have a lot more agreement than the slogans suggest. So if you, when people talk at me with the slogans, they're like, deep on the police, don't you dare deep on the police. Um, but really when you start to talk about it, everyone wants to see better mental health care treatment. Everyone wants to see alternatives to incarceration. Everyone wants to see an education system that's equitable and doesn't just, you know, discriminate on the education you get based on your zip code. Right. And so you hear this, you hear this from teachers, you hear this from police, you hear this from hospital administrators who are tired of being, you know, the last step in the mental health care pipeline and picking people up. Um, and so it's up to us to solve it. And we have to solve it together. Um, and so sometimes what I tell people is, you know, you can never pay me to run for Congress. Like that looks awful and dysfunctional. And I don't like to fly back and forth across the country. But the other real reason I wouldn't want to do it is that we're much more functional in Olympia. And maybe that's because we've been in democratic control the last few years, but it's, it's way more fun to do that than it looks like at the national scene. And we are committed to working together. Um, we really do better when we sit down with people with diverse interests. Um, you hear things around, you, you know, you may not agree with them on everything, but we all have our own biases. And so having someone poke holes on those biases, I think makes us better. It makes us better. Corporations say that that makes better teams. And I think that makes us a better team in the legislature. And something else that I'm really proud of is um, my caucus is really diverse. You know, I, I look at some of the city councils around here that are having to deal with Black Lives Matter. I mean, we have this incredibly strong Black caucus that is doing a lot of this work and guiding us and making us all better people. So diversity and lots of different strengths really just leads to better government. Well, so working together. <laughs> we, we, yes, we want to send you back to Olympia for sure. What is your, uh, what's your website? Uh, Sharon and then the number four and then whatcom.com. We so appreciate uh, talking with you. Again, I, like I said, I, I find all this fascinating. I, I could talk with you for hours, but we're going to have to leave it here. Uh, Representative Schumick, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thank you again to Representative Sharon Shoemake. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julianne Jievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fisier. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you.